part of my original uh, focus has been on kind of covering the history of Panhandle 2020 since it's almost 2020. Can you believe it? And since Russell and I've been doing that since 2003, uh, along with some other folks, it's it's really been kind of interesting to to look back and then to now see you're the things. Here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dang it, we're here. Hello, I'm Annette, and thanks for listening to my podcast. Today, we're talking to Dr. Donna Beagle, a poverty expert, someone who has really impacted Amarillo and certainly lots of other places. But Donna, let's talk about you just a little bit, and then we'll talk about your work in Amarillo and expand from that. So thank you for being on my podcast, first of all. My pleasure. Great, great, great. Excited that you're here today. A lot of people want to hear this. So Donna, just, you know, you tell your story across the nation and beyond. Tell us just real quickly your, you know, why you're doing the work you're doing today and who who you were that grew you into this person, I guess, this <laughs> okay. changer. Well, my big saying is I know too much to be quiet. Uh, a lot of the folks who talk and train on poverty, they haven't had the lived experience. So often I think some really key things are missed. Uh, so I'm always saying go to the people and hear their perspectives and their voices. So I was born into generations of migrant labor poverty. My mom was a cotton picker, so was my grandma. Uh, and our family survived primarily doing migrant labor work. My five brothers and I grew up living pretty much in a car, traveling Arizona, Oregon, Washington, California mostly. So very little schooling. Uh, at 26 years old, I couldn't write a complete sentence. I certainly couldn't read a newspaper. Uh, and all through school, when I did go to school, the, the teachers would use words I didn't know and, and then send me the dictionary to look them up, and I didn't know those words either. And so a lot of that equated to IQ and potential, so low expectations. So at 15, I'd finally had it with school. I didn't see its relevance of how do you take what's being taught in a classroom and go apply it when you're being evicted that night. So I quit uh, my freshman year, six months in, and got married. And I married a guy from also generations of migrant labor poverty. He had gone to seven years of high poverty schooling and wasn't literate at all. So we began our married life, had a honeymoon in a cherry field in Washington, and then uh, started having a family and living exactly as we had grown up, uh, following the fruit, temporary season, all kinds of jobs, um, jobs that don't you require don't require you to have a skill or an education. So uh, certainly low paying jobs that kept us in poverty, even though we were both working. Um, at 26, that marriage ended, and then I went back to school with the help of four middle-class women who were running a pilot program and really did a comprehensive approach of getting stakeholders engaged so whatever might get in the way of the participants in the pilot program, they had the partnerships there to remove those obstacles, whether it was housing or transportation or childcare. And they really began teaching me that I wasn't stupid. And they just really took an, uh, the time uh, to, to say, you know, you, you are somebody and you know some things already. So they had me make a list of everything I did in one day, and I brought my list in, and, and I thought everything on that list was nothing. 
I, I didn't think I was smart. I thought I had nothing to offer. I said, ain't every other word. I didn't know. I didn't know just basic literacy things like what's Watergate. I didn't even know that. <laughs> so they uh, started showing me that, in fact, I did know some things by looking at what I was doing as a skill and then looking at professional job descriptions and the skills needed to do those job descriptions. And they would circle, oh, you're doing, you're doing, you take care of your kids. That means that you could do daycare. Are you, uh, when you have money, you're trying to manage it. So that means you could do accounting. And I started just sitting up a little taller and really began to think, well, maybe I'm not so stupid. Uh, and, and as the time went on and, and they kept doing different uh, activities like having me go meet people who were professionals that had never happened to me and I started seeing they're just people they're not better than me and uh, they knew words I didn't know but but they were just people who had different experiences and that really helped me to let go of the internalizing that I was poverty I believed that I, I actually wrote in my diary I think our family got the bad genes I don't know what is wrong with us, but because we can't get out of poverty no matter what we do. We all work. We still get evicted. We go hungry. Um, all five of my brothers have been incarcerated. And, and I tell people I'm the only one that hasn't, and it's not because I didn't break the law. Uh, poverty just simply does not allow people to always be good. Uh, you do what you have to do to survive in that war zone of poverty. So I do bring that lived experience of, of pretty much 28 years of my life not having a place to lay my head and watching my family members struggle uh, with hunger and utilities shut off and no toilet paper and no soap and no way to go to the laundromat. And uh, so that gives me a, a lens, I think, that, that really can help illuminate the true poverty causes so that we actually are as a community fighting the poverty not the people who live in it because when we blame the people we tend to punish them for poverty conditions and that's something that I, I really try to help people with so I, I did end up going back to school I got my GED at 26 years old and 10 years later my doctorate and I studied poverty all the way to the doctorate and as I became aware that we were graduating people from college without the history of poverty, United States of America, that, that we didn't have a clear definition of poverty, that also helped me in my personal growth because I had grown up believing the people who are making it don't care about the people who aren't. And, and my, my lived experiences of watching my mom ask for help and, and there'd be plastic or glass between her and the people or their tone of voice would be so talking down to her. And so many times she, she would cry and say, I can't ask anymore. And I saw that uh, and believed people didn't care. Uh, I, I told a teacher, I don't want to go out on the playground. People fight out there in this really high poverty school where there's stress so high. And she said, you have to go out because I have work to do. So I get beat up and I believe no one cared. So one, when I began learning about poverty and realizing it wasn't that people didn't care, it was that they didn't have a clue. They seriously could not describe what is it like to be in generational poverty or, or working class poverty in many cases for professionals or immigrant poverty or any of the many, many types of poverty. So all of my studies really centered around communicating, relating, and understanding the structural causes in ways that we can do uh, systemic change, in ways that we can engage the whole community 
and also for students and families in poverty to help rebuild that hope and reduce that isolation which so often perpetuates the poverty. So in 2010, we brought you to Amarillo because we had been working through Panhandle 2020 on the issue of trying to improve our levels of educational attainment. And we realized that one of the biggest barriers to educational attainment was poverty. And uh, you were referred to us, and thankfully so, because I think you've helped really uh, guide us in, in understanding the just the realities and removing the judgment and all. And um, we brought you in first uh, for a community-wide discussion uh, about what we were calling our opportunity community. We talked about... Well, I, I remember when I first met you, and you, I have to say, Annette, you are an amazing leader. You convened, I believe there were 350 leaders convened when you brought me in and I was, I, I think I spoke for maybe an hour. I don't remember the time, but I remember thinking this doesn't happen everywhere. This doesn't happen everywhere where you're able to get the bank people, the, the human services people, the college people, the K-12 people, uh, the, the foundations, you you got them in the same room to have this focus on this thing called poverty. And I was so impressed with you and your leadership. Well, thank you. I think our discussion really building on the issue of the economic implications of educational attainment allowed us in our conservative community to then move into the realities of of poverty, whereas if we'd started out there, I don't think our community would have embraced the work as much, to be mm -hmm. honest. So it's a build. It's a building. Well, you know, poverty is a sensitive subject, and it brings stuff up for everyone. So to get a focus on it, you know, I always say Martin Luther King talked about if you don't talk about race, you're going to have racism, and certainly that is true for poverty as well. So if if we if we don't have a shared language, if you have the different sectors of a community all having different perspectives about what is poverty and a faulty federal poverty guideline and not even having the same conversation because they don't have that shared language and then operating with a lot of subconscious bias where you come to believe oh they like welfare or they're not working or they want to have babies to get welfare or they you know so many uh, stereotypes because the number one teacher of poverty isn't our universities we really do graduate people from college in all sectors without the history of poverty so we don't have that grounded perspective of how did we get to where we are today uh, with the federal government uh, saying right about 25,000 is what a family of four needs I've yet and I've worked in all 50 states I have yet to have a group of professionals who say 25,000 will take care of a family of four I mean everybody knows that's a ludicrous number it doesn't include child care health care or transportation and yet that's what we use to calculate who gets Pell Grants who gets uh who gets sent to Head Start, who gets the SNAP uh, food stamp benefits, uh, and so many other things. So when you have a f federal faulty poverty guideline, you have a, a community where there isn't a shared understanding of the true structural causes of poverty or language to even begin to talk about it, um, then what you end up with is a lot of what I call unintentional harm. And so getting those leaders, I think, in that room and in Amarillo and having 
because that's exactly what I did was I gave them a shared language to talk about poverty. I gave them a human uh, perspective on its impacts. I gave them uh, an understanding of why people do some of the things they do, which is looking in, it's so easy to judge, but there are reasons why people do the things they do. And if you're in it, they make totally sense, but it's when you're looking in that often we, we end up judging. And my big quote is, if you're judging, you can't connect. And if you can't connect, you can't communicate. And if you can't communicate, we're certainly not going to eradicate poverty, which I believe is absolutely possible. We had you in town for a number of events over the, oh gosh, almost past 10 years now. But we had, uh, you held your first Poverty Institutes outside of Portland and Amarillo. We have, I don't know how many dozens, if not hundreds, of trained poverty coaches in our community. Mm -hmm. We've trained uh, the entirety of Amarillo College uh, staff several times, uh, Amarillo ISD staff some years back. Uh, You know, certainly we brought you in specifically one time for an elected leader's. Uh, mm-hmm. training and city and and beyond uh, leadership so we've really tried to to create that shared language across our community uh, we we also brought you in uh, for the first implementation if you will of what do you do about it uh, for mm-hmm. an opportunity conference and we, right. we've hosted over the year I think we did three in a row three years and so that's where we bring our, our low-income individuals that we call neighbors into, uh, into a community, and I'll let you describe it, into a community event that we hosted. And, and uh, we had the first one, we had 74 individuals referred to us by the school districts and social service providers. And, you know, they came in not knowing what they were getting into, and they were a little <laughs> bit scared but we had twice as many navigators uh, who did. had volunteered, and I think they were even more scared <laughs> than the neighbors. <laughs> so the navigators being the folks in middle class, uh, you know, currently who would be willing to help navigate for an individual uh, who is in the crisis of poverty. So talk about the Opportunity Conference, as you recall. Well, the Opportunity uh the opportunity community model actually I began developing in 2003 and piloted in Traverse City, Michigan. So I had been implementing in Traverse City, Michigan probably uh, four years or so before your community decided to implement the model. So you got the benefit of having Barb Limco from Michigan, who who was a, a community leader in Michigan, to come and really help as your opportunity coach. But the the model is really it is really about bringing the leaders together in the community and getting those leaders on board for really looking at existing uh, resources within the systems. So without those leaders, we can't get the participation of the frontline people. We can't get, we can't have the, we we can't get the numbers of navigators we need. So we get the leaders on board. The first event is the leadership for change, and and then we do a prosperity summit. Uh, and we didn't do that in Amarillo. It wasn't built in at that time. The model has shifted, and we've added as lessons learned. But one of the things we do now is a community wide event where you invite those frontline people after you get the leaders in, then you do the community and you get everybody you can get there to get that shared understanding of poverty, to dispel those myths, to get a 
a common understanding of what's in the way of the neighbors in their own community. And then those folks then sign up to be navigators or specialty navigators. And specialty navigators are people who work within a college or a hospital or a, a, a business where they will take the calls of our navigators. So if a navigator, somebody not in poverty, is working with somebody who wants to get a GED, then that navigator doesn't have to know, oh, gosh, how do I get a GED? How does someone get a GED? They can actually call the specialty navigator because the college president has said, here's two people in my staff that will take your calls and help you through our system. So we found that that insider perspective in hospitals and different organizations around the community has given a leverage to tapping into resources people didn't know existed. And the one that always comes to mind is a woman trying to get her associate's degree who was um, had a medical bill. She was a single mom, and they were garnishing her wages. So she was going to have to quit. So she told her navigator, and her navigator called the specialty navigator at the hospital, and that person at the hospital knew of a charity fund within the hospital. They were able to get her bill written off, and she completed her associate's degree, which we all know for, for her and those three children in our communities that that's a win-win. So that the navigators are, are people. I, I tell people that if you can be a friend, you could be a navigator. Uh, and and the, the real hope, I believe, for, for our country is in the communities where we are implementing, we've had people come out of the woodwork um, judges, uh, retired engineers, uh, lawyers. We had a community where 32 lawyers signed up to be navigators for their neighbors. And we give the navigators poverty training uh, so that they are not judging. They understand uh, the perspectives of the people in the different kinds of poverty so that they can actually communicate and relate with them. And those navigators agree for one year to walk with the neighbor on their journey to move out and stay out of poverty. So Sometimes it's as simple as calling someone up and saying, how you doing? Or, you know, <laughs> what's in your way? Or maybe the neighbor wants to start a business and they have no idea where to begin. Maybe the navigator can help with that. But what we teach our navigators is, if not me, then who? So if the navigator can't figure out how to access a resource or an opportunity that the person's interested in, they can tap into those specialty navigators. And if that doesn't work, they can start looking uh, in the community for... Um, others who may be able to help. So uh, the second event is the Prosperity Summit. The third event is the one that you're describing, which is the one specifically designed for people currently living in poverty. And the this is the most profound work I do. I just did it in uh, Cortland, New York. And, you know, people just never cease to amaze me. Um, there we had, uh, we had three navigators for every neighbor uh, show up. And again, I really, that just fills me with hope that people are willing to get involved. And once you educate people that, that, you know, break down some of the fears and the divides in our communities, because we are so segregated by social class, then you see people who really, people really, really want to help, especially when you can help them understand. So, um, the neighbor conference, it's the opportunity conference and it's, uh, the morning we focus on remove the shame and rebuild the hope. And I remember walking into the first one in Amarillo and all of the community members that were there, they all had t-shirts made, um, Opportunity Community t-shirts, and they were just so genuinely interested in making a difference for their neighbors. And you could feel it. That room was lit up with uh, 
just the intense uh, emotions of people wanting to make a difference. And I know the neighbors felt that. And we spent the morning really looking at removing the shame of poverty and, and rebuilding the hope. Because if, if you can't get past the shame and hope, you can put opportunities in front of people all day long and there's no point in them trying. If they believe, like I did at 26, that I'm stupid and what's the point of trying or nothing's ever going to work. If you've And poverty does that to people. It beats them down to where they lose their self-confidence, they lose esteem, they, they, they lose hope. So we work, we have several activities designed to really rebuild that and help people see you're not the cause of poverty. And I say to people, if you were the cause of poverty, you'd be the only one in it. America has over 40 million. And again, that's just what we count with that faulty federal poverty guideline. So we spend the morning doing that. And you can literally see people uh, sitting up taller. You can literally see people making more eye contact. I see, I can change body posture in about 90 minutes in that morning session. And uh, then in the afternoon, we go into grassroots economic development, and that's a, a curriculum I wrote to really help people see how they take things that they already know and build on that to earn a living, whether that means going uh, to college or post getting a post-secondary skill or starting their own business. So we will work on what would you do for a living if you could do anything. And, and then we will talk about what might get in your way, and we will break it down into very manageable, doable baby steps because we know when people leave that day poverty's still going to knock them down so we want to we want to make sure they have reasons to get back up and take one more step toward the kind of life that they want i remind people typically if i'm doing a presentation or interacting with a group after a little bit even if you don't know them then you can say look i could call any one of you in this room for a favor folks who are living in the crisis and war zone of poverty are not connected to the middle class connections we have. And except their interaction with middle class individuals is typically in position of authority. So this model kind of turns that on its head and allows them access to to some middle class opportunities, expectations, and... yes. Expertise. And it certainly is rooted, every ounce of this model, the opportunity community model is rooted in research. So what we know is it's a world of who you know, and titles matter. So people are able to get around barriers with a title. <laughs> people are able to get waivers with a title. But who are you going to call if you're in generational poverty or working class? But there's no names to drop. And there's, there's not even anybody to ask because of such segregation by social class. So uh, in my research, my doctoral research, I interviewed people from generational poverty who achieved bachelor's degrees. And the number one variable that helped people to get from the deepest poverty in America to a four-year college degree was mentoring and navigating so that is straight out of research and when i delved into the content of that research it was really four things it was people saying someone who was making it believed i could too and and you know i always tell people my mom believed in me she 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 thought she thought i could do anything and she she said things like you could write them their harlequin romances Uh, she believed in me but what if a teacher said that to me uh, it's a, called an impacting comment. So it's very different to hear from somebody who is making it that they think you can too. And the second thing was that 
somebody uh, taught them they weren't stupid. Like I had that experience of those four women showing, well, you're doing that. This is, that's kind of what's happening over here. Uh, so, so beginning to really feel like, well, maybe I'm not so dumb and I could try something because before that feeling, there's really no point in trying because you're just going to fail and who wants that? Uh, and the third thing was that their, their mentors who navigated for them didn't judge them. They understood that the things they were doing in their daily lives were what they needed to be doing in that context. So they suspended judgment uh, and understood if they got their nails painted, uh, they need compliments too. <laughs> so the, they didn't judge them. And the fourth thing was they connected them to other people who could mentor and navigate in other areas, like maybe uh, they're mentoring and navigating in in academics, but you need housing. So they would make that connection to housing or to transportation. So the, those four things of somebody believed in me, uh, somebody taught me I wasn't stupid, someone didn't judge me, and someone connected to me to other people who could help in other areas. Those were the keys to folks moving all the way to a bachelor's degree. And the second variable that in my research was learning about social class, learning they weren't the cause of poverty. So Paulo Freire talks about in the United States, people, uh, because we don't have honest dialogue about true structural causes of poverty, so you don't hear even today, we have a housing crisis, housing affordability crisis, but it's not breaking news. We just don't hear it. So affordable housing, access to nutrition, preventative care, childcare, transportation, there should never be a community where we can say to a real estate agent, where are your good schools? We should not be okay with that. And those are the real causes of poverty. But as long as we, as long as we're not aware of that and having those kinds of conversations, we too, we typically will blame the people. So the opportunity community model really allowed me to infuse research, resiliency theory, uh, where we focus on what's right about people and really pay attention to what they're doing. That's that what they already know, because that gives everybody hope because then we have something to build on strengths perspective. Uh, and that too is really a, another way of how do you see people's strengths and because what we have predominantly is a deficit model. What's wrong with them? What don't they know? What can't they do? Um, turning that around. And certainly social capital theory, where you're building those networks of support. You're building an inclusive, responsive community so that no matter what door people walk into, they're treated with dignity and respect and really able to get the, the obstacle that poverty might present out of their way. So after we do the, uh, what would you do for a living? I introduce people with that title. Uh, so we've got an author here. We've got a business owner here. We've got, and, and cause I know from my, my master's is communication. If they can't say it, they can't become it. So it's the beginning of getting them to say, this is what I'm going to be. This is where I'm going to work toward. And every day I'm going to do one thing toward that. And then after that piece, we introduce those navigators. I play the song, Lean On Me, and the navigators come up. And I've never implemented in a community where the entire room <laughs> ends up in tears. And the neighbors, are they write on their evaluation. I didn't know people like that cared about us. And, and I don't feel so alone now. And I, I think maybe I can do some things. And, and the navigators, I mean, one of my favorite parts of the opportunity community is inevitably I'll have a navigator who's not in poverty come over and at the end of the day meeting their neighbors saying, 
you know, um, Dr. Beagle, I met my neighbor and she's just a person. She's, she's just a woman. And the neighbors will come over and they'll go, Donna, I met my navigator. He's just a guy. And that's really, we use identification theory where we're helping people see they have more in common as a human than different. And so we have those navigators share something that you wouldn't know about them that, that can help people see that they are just a person. So they'll say things like I'm John Jones and I'm an attorney. And what you wouldn't know about me is I have 18 grandkids and you could see the neighbors in the audience going, Oh, you're a grandpa. Okay. Well, maybe I could talk to you. Uh, so, so that's the beginning of that relationship. And when that day ends, the navigator and the neighbor begin work with that, with those steps that have been outlined in their, in their grassroots economic development piece. But Amarillo, um, was out by far outstanding in getting the navigators and getting the community pieces built and doing those ongoing trainings, because we know what we know is that like race, you can't go to one workshop and say, okay, I've, I'm done with race. I, I get it. It's ongoing and it's layered and we have to get at subconscious biases and beliefs and attitudes that can prevent us from really creating pathways for people to move out and stay out. Since we're talking about education in this podcast, among other things, talk about a student of poverty, of generational poverty, walking into a classroom, walking into a school, and what the differences might be for that student versus a student from a middle-class or affluent family? Well, we know that students from poverty enter schools with a much more limited exposure to vocabulary that middle-class folks are exposed to on a daily basis. Um, They hear it from the womb. Uh, from parents who have heard those words from the womb. <laughs> and so, and they're around these things. So they're able to gather the meanings of vocabulary. And so what we know is students from poverty enter schools with a more limited vocabulary. And typically the, the downside of that is it gets attributed to IQ. They don't know these words. Or even, like I said, ain't every other word. Uh, I didn't know when to say gone or went or how people know when to say seen. I didn't know... I was not speaking middle-class sentence structure, but I did know my entire life people couldn't hear me. I would, I would have two helping professionals talk to each other about my life and never once saying, what do you think? What would you like to happen? What would be helpful to you? So, so we enter school with a more limited vocabulary, more limited exposure, and typically have middle-class teachers who've had middle-class experiences and so the subject matter, like when I was in school, my teachers would introduce a subject and then they would use a middle-class lived experience to explain it. Because when humans give examples, they pull them from their own lived experience. So it wasn't only vocabulary I didn't know. I didn't know the examples. And learning theory says if you can't make your examples relevant to the people you're communicating with, they can't grab it. So... I didn't understand, I didn't understand the example. So it was, it felt like a whole lot of, well, everybody knows this. Yeah, no, we don't. Everybody's been here. No, we haven't. And teachers would often ask, you know, put the scissors away. And I, I would do it. I would do nothing. And they would label me deviant. Uh, instead of understanding that I didn't know where the scissors went and I, and I wasn't about to let anybody know that I was that stupid. So, so a lot of things that are labeled deviant, our students 
trying to protect themselves from being made fun of and ridiculed for not knowing the expectations. So I, I really encourage uh, educators to think of the school as a foreign land and, and, the, and the, the language, the middle class language as a foreign language. So say it, say it again, say it another way. Uh, my teachers, when I didn't understand their examples, would often, when I'd say, I don't get it, they would explain it again and use the exact same examples. It's like, okay, I didn't get it with that example. The first, I'm probably not going to, you need to use different examples and be able to pull out of the students, what does this look like from your perspective? How would you say this? And and that can really help students to feel a sense of belonging in the classroom. But, you know, if your shoes don't look right, your hair doesn't look right, you're not wearing the right clothes, you don't arrive at school in the right kind of car, uh, you don't, your parents don't have the right jobs, uh, it, it feels like you're entering a world where, you're not wanted. And a lot of times there's signs on the walls that tell you you're not wanted. Uh, a lot of times there's a tone of voice that tells you you're not wanted. And, and these are not bad people, but very often they're not poverty informed. And so we, we really try to help educators gain poverty competencies so that they are really meeting those students where they are as K-12 or early learning, but also in higher ed. So Amarillo College, they now have 82 Beagle Certified Poverty Coaches, including President Russell Lowry Hart, who I love dearly, and he's another person that just exhibits this uh, leadership that is uh, so critical to actually in- infusing this into our different systems. A lot of people, you know, this is my 30th year of doing this work, and I have worked in all 50 states, and I've worked with all sectors, legal, health, social service, faith-based business, elected officials, higher ed, and, and I teach this work and there are leaders who take it and they go back and they're able to implement it. And Russell was one of those, one of those leaders as were you for sure. You know, when you look at what in my research, I ask, what does education mean to you and your family? I asked this of people in generational poverty and the number one answer was stress, the stress of getting there knowing what they're talking about, knowing where to go. And I use the example, when I got to community college at 26, I entered a world of words I had never heard before and subject matter that I'd never been exposed to. And part of the way I made it through community college was my brother Wayne spent his time in prison reading. And I would try to read my textbooks. I tried to take notes and I didn't know the words and had nobody to talk to about it. So I would write Wayne these letters and say, we're studying this. I got a test in history in three weeks. Find out what you can. And he would write me letters and he grew up with me. So he was using examples from, hey, remember we were picking berries and living in that camp and we were doing this and that's kind of what they're talking about here. So this is like that and that's that's what you need to do to help students learn. So that's how I made it through community college was having my brother in prison who spent his time reading able to translate for me. And then when I got to the university, of course, I met Dr. Bob Fulford. And fortunately for me and fluky for me, he had studied language and social class his whole career. So he knew of the vocabulary struggles. He knew of, I mean, I did say ain't when I met him at age 28. I was still saying ain't. And he said, I want to help you learn a second language. He said, you communicate beautifully and it works in your context, but I want to help you with the language that will, will help you in education and the work world. So I always say I'm bilingual now. I can speak fluent middle-class language. Um, and, 
and it is it is translating so just because a student doesn't know vocabulary doesn't haven't had an experience uh, that doesn't mean they can't get it what they know when you get them isn't all they can know and I think you see you know uh, at Amarillo College where you have poverty informed people in every sector every section of that college both in the leadership and in the different disciplines and in student services and advising you have check and balances there to say hey have you thought about it this way in terms of meeting students needs to look at curriculum to look at the strength of those community partnerships that's what we certify our coaches to do they have those skill sets and and when you get that you really begin to see systemic change and and I've I've found that it takes three or more embedded Beagle coaches in an organization because systemic change is so hard that there is such a tendency to say this is what we've done this is the way we've got to do it we can't do that uh, and I always say is it working but when one person gets certified as a coach they go back to that organization and try to try to implement some of the evidence-based best practices and they they get a lot of pushback and often struggle but we found if there are three or more policies change um, professional development levels change because we train those coaches to do ongoing professional development so as the faculty turnover as new staff come on board you continue that that learning so that you you do create that what Amarillo calls culture of caring Emerald College calls theirs culture of caring, but they're, they're poverty-informed people who know and understand the different life experiences of poverty and understand that you know fighting the people isn't going to get us anywhere, but removing the obstacles does, and they, they certainly are testimonial to that. A lot of people who listen to this podcast will be at the community-level educational uh, institutions. Um, if, if I'm someone living in the crisis of poverty, what would you say to me? Well, when I do the opportunity community with people in poverty, I, I have to teach them that it's not that people don't care. Uh, it's that they don't know. And I give examples like when I was on welfare, my welfare check was $408. My rent in a neighborhood called Felony Flats was $395. So I had 13 bucks left. And my welfare worker said, if you could be responsible and save money, we're allowed to match it. And I just remember thinking, thank you. This hopelessness of that situation. So typically what happens is you develop an attitude. You develop a smart mouth. And I had both, full force. So I teach people in the opportunity community that it's not that people don't care is seriously they don't know so i say instead of getting an attitude and 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 because how's it work for you when you smart off your food stamp worker (laughs) you're not getting those food stamps so who are you hurting and when i can get them to a place where they see it it's not that people don't care it's that they don't know and that it is their job and i tell them your job is to it's time for you to go to work when someone judges you or asks you to do something you have no capacity to do instead of getting mad i want you to say Time for me to go to work and help them know what my world looks and feels like. Because if people don't know, they truly can't help you. So later in the day, as I'm teaching that, I will say, what do you do if someone judges you? And someone will raise their hand. They'll say, I'll tell them what's going on with me. And I'll give them a gift card or something. But for people who live in poverty, it does feel like nobody cares. And that's one of the first things you'll hear out of both kids and adults is nobody cares about people like us. 
So we have to really work toward creating caring environments where we're paying attention to our tone of voice. We're paying attention to who we look up to see. Most people in poverty will say that no one looks up when they walk in a room and they're invisible. And so, so they're, they feel like they're not seen, they're not valued, they're not wanted. Um, they're a problem, they're a bother. Uh, so we got to get at creating those systems to where someone walks into a hospital and it doesn't matter if they have teeth or if their clothes are dirty. They are treated with respect and dignity and not, do you have a job? <laughs> kind of things. So I, th I think for people in poverty, really understanding if someone is saying things that, you know, really don't make any sense from your perspective, reach out and, and try to help them understand. That's one of the best. I don't know how many people I shut out of my life because I had that attitude uh, who truly wanted to help me. Um, but I couldn't see them because of my attitude. So I, I validate the attitude. If you're watching mom do without food, then the attitude is an appropriate behavior. And if you're watching grandma do without medicine, a smart mouth is called for. But in terms of moving out and staying out of poverty, we have to learn how to use it. And, and that's really getting to that point where we can, we can truly help people understand these are the obstacles in my way. Whether those obstacles are internal, maybe I don't feel any hope, I think I'm stupid, I don't feel any confidence, I'm sick, I got a learning challenge, or maybe they're external where I don't have gas and I don't have a place to live and I'm my, if I do have a place to live, I don't have lights or I don't have heat. Letting people know that uh, is, is step one. Uh, and because poverty teaches so much shame, people, people tend to hold that in and not let people know the full story of what's going on with them. But uh, I really try to help remove that shame so that we can all see that poverty is the problem, not the people. Donna, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. And I appreciate and thank you for all the work you're doing across the country and beyond. Close out with just a comment about folks who grow up in, in the United States in poverty versus folks who uh, say, you know, some of our refugee populations who come mm -hmm. here from other countries. Maybe they didn't grow up in poverty, but they come here in poverty. Speak to that. Because we don't have a real clear definition of poverty, you know, I had responses like um, when I was looking for doctoral candidates in, for my research who had grown up in, in uh, generational poverty and achieved bachelor's degree. I, I shared the story of one man who said, I grew up I'll do your study. And I said, well, how did your family make it? And he said, well, my father was a physician. He died. I was 12. I went to live with my grandparents. I had the right mindset. I was motivated. And I ended up working in my grandparents store and getting a doctorate myself, becoming a doctor, he says, just like his dad. And, and as I was listening to that from generational poverty, I was stunned because I, I never knew a single human being who owned a store let alone be related to anybody who owned anything and and so I think for community members and and people who are in poverty to understand there are many different lived experiences of poverty there's generational and these are families who typically are struggling with literacy they're working that day for food that night they're constant evictions 
the tire blows there's something bullets of poverty hitting them every day uh they may be saying ain't every other day every other word may not know the middle class sentence structure uh but that doesn't mean again that they can't know it and then you have working class poverty where you have people who are working in many of our organizations as teacher aides or working at, in the front office at a college and they are living paycheck to paycheck and don't have a lot left over uh, and one thing can send them deeper into poverty uh, and then you have immigrant poverty where you have people who not only have the Maslow needs not being met, but they also struggle with language barriers and cultural barriers and often prejudice and racism and discrimination. So they have two big obstacles to developing their potential. But one stark difference between immigrant poverty and United States poverty, uh, and this is from the work of Paulo Ferrer, he says, you know, when you, in the United States, we don't, teach poverty we graduate people without poverty 101 we we don't have honest dialogue about the true structural causes so we end up uh, in Frere's words we're the only country in the world that teaches our people they are the cause in developing nations where you go uh, you I've been I've worked now in eight developing nations and you see people who have nothing I mean literally I saw a man who had uh, uh, built a hut out of grass and sticks and that was all he had but what he did have that people in the united states do not was his sense of self he had his own his confidence and because there there's real conversations about the broken infrastructure the broken economic system so you don't hear people say if you worked harder you wouldn't be poor uh, if you would just make better choices you wouldn't be poor because they know there are real causes here uh, so, so if somebody's to immigrate, they're also in. We are worldwide. People are taught that America is the land of opportunity. So, if people do get that opportunity to come here, they come with a four-letter word, and that is hope. And what I teach is poverty is the. I mean, hope is the wings. Hope is the wings for grabbing that opportunity. Uh, and without it, what's, there's really no point in trying. So, what I teach is it's not so much about identifying and labeling someone as oh you're generational you're working class you're immigrant but but it's about being able to hear people and having an understanding that there are so many types of poverty and without really listening from their perspective it'll be difficult to make a difference thank you donna good to see you dr beagle has helped us become very educated about the issues of poverty and those struggling in the crisis of poverty in our community Thank you for being on my podcast, and thank you for listening to Annette on Education.